0: This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode number 32, entitled, Let Us Make Man and Other Passages with Plural Pronouns. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thanks so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith, and I am your host. When it comes to defining the God of Israel within the scriptures, there are literally thousands of reasons to conclude that this God is a single person, one being. When one looks at the three biblical languages in which the text of scripture were composed, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, the number of singular references to God are in the tens of thousands. Grammatically, every time there is a singular pronoun for God, such as I, me, he, him, himself, myself, etc. This is another argument for the oneness and unity of God. Combine those singular pronouns with the singular verb of which there are thousands with God as the subject and these two make for an increasingly stronger case. Adjectives for God are also singular and there are hundreds of those within the Bible. Pronominal suffixes are also singular when used of God in every occurrence. So add hundreds of them to our total. When all of these are combined, it is estimated that there are over 25,000 indicators that Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is grammatically represented as one single person. However, 25,000 references to the oneness and unity of God are apparently not enough to convince some readers that God is a single person. Genesis 1.26 is the most commonly cited passage to suggest that God is really a plurality of persons, perhaps two or even three persons. The famous, let us make man in our image verse, caught the attention of both ancient interpreters and modern ones. This episode seeks to explore this verse and others like it, where there appears to be plural pronouns used for God. How should these passages be responsibly interpreted? How would their original authors want them to be read? Is it appropriate to completely ignore the 25,000 grammatical references to God being a single person and only focus on the few verses that have a plural pronoun, especially when you can count the number of those verses on one hand? These questions deserve fair answers, and this episode seeks to answer them today. So let's begin. Let's look at Genesis 1.26 within its context. Genesis 1.26 comes at the end of the first creation story in Genesis. I'm going to read Genesis 1.26 and verse 27. The passage reads, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's Genesis 1:26 through 27. We can look there in verse 26, and we can see the singular pronouns. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So we have the word us. We have the word are twice. And, of course, we have the verb, which is a plural verb the making of man or the making of humanity without any doubt there are plural references within this verse the septuagint translators who were jewish uh, did not try to hide or obscure this fact they also translate it and they maintain the plural references in this passage what is interesting though is that in verse 27 it gets reverted back to the singular god created man in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female he created them three verbs there that are all singular third-person singular within the Hebrew okay he created him okay so there is a dialogue in verse 26 let us make man in our image according to our likeness but the actual creation or the forming of humanity within the image of God occurs by one single person in verse 27 so again the creation of humanity happens by one person. But the dialogue involving the creation, the suggestion that human beings be created in our image, according to our likeness, happens with more than one person. Okay? So we need to make an important distinction there that there is only one creator expressed in Genesis 126 through 27. But it's very clear that God said, according to the beginning of Genesis 126, let us make man in our image to at least one other person, okay, perhaps more than one person. There's nothing really else here that we can get in Genesis one twenty-six through 27 in order to settle this particular point. There have been a variety of suggestions proposed as to what this plural reference means. Some people have thought in the past that this is God speaking in the plural of majesty in the same way that the queen can say that this is our kingdom, or we will reign authoritatively the queen can often speak and even today speaks with a plural pronoun this has been discounted by modern scholars as unlikely the most appropriate reading of this passage here but it is likely it is possible within the hebrew there are other places to where it's clear that the plural majesty is understood for god elsewhere in the scriptures i can think of a few passages within the psalms to where the reference to God's dwelling place is actually plural in the Hebrew, but it gets translated as a singular in most translations. But it's kind of one of those things that God has one singular dwelling place specifically within the Jerusalem temple, but it gets described in, gosh, a half-dozen passages within the Psalms as a plural reference. So the plural majesty is possible, but that option has not been deemed very likely by modern scholars. Of course, many of the eager... Trinitarian interpreters would like to read this and say this is a reference to God speaking to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Of course, God speaking in Genesis one twenty six does have a singular verb, and so we have the singular God speaking to someone else. So it's unlikely that God, who by the way is omniscient and doesn't really have any need to speak to himself, is speaking here clearly to persons other than himself. Again, in Genesis one twenty six, Then God said uses a singular verb. God speaks as a single person, but God speaks to other persons that are distinct and separate from himself. So whoever these references are to the us and the our image and our likeness, Are persons that obviously include God because God is speaking to them but they are persons who are distinct and separate from God they would not be God himself so that reference is unlikely and in fact I don't have any modern Genesis commentary that still suggests that the triune God is in reference here and I'm just looking up at my shelf now and I can count 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 commentaries on Genesis, and none of them are suggesting this. This has just kind of been discounted by modern scholars. So what are we to make of this passage? Well, let's put this on hold, because I think we're going to look at some other passages that are going to give a good suggestion for this. The next passage, passage number 2, that has a plural pronoun in reference to God, is in Genesis chapter 3. We haven't moved very far in the book of Genesis or in the initial chapters of the Bible before we get another reference to a plural pronoun in association with God. In Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to start in verse 22 and read all the way until verse 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. That's Genesis 3, verses 22 through 24. Clearly there in Genesis 3:22, God again says us. He says, Behold, the man has become like one of us. God here is speaking to other persons here. Okay? At least one other person. But here, the Lord God said, of course, the verb there for a saying is singular. God is a singular person. The Lord God is by himself saying this, but he's speaking to other persons. It's not likely that he's speaking to Adam. It's not likely that he's speaking to Eve, and certainly unlikely that he's speaking to the serpent. But what's interesting there is that in verse 24, we have some other persons that are introduced into the story. We have the cherubim, okay? And by the way, the cherubim is a plural reference to a singular cherub, okay? In Hebrew, a singular cherub is called a cherub, and the plural is called the cherubim, okay? So it's not a singular cherubim, as some people have misunderstood this passage. There are a plurality of cherubs, as we might say in English, referenced here in Genesis 3.24. So what we see here is that God speaks to some other person or persons, and it's assumed that these other persons know the distinction between good and evil, according to Genesis 3.22. But it's very clear that the answer to this problem that God addresses in Genesis 3.22 is solved by God removing humanity from the Garden of Eden and stationing plural angels, a plurality of cherubs, at the east of Eden and in God also guards it with a flaming sword that's spinning around in a bunch of different directions, okay? So we have there angels that are there in the context, and that seems to be the most obvious, and there doesn't seem to be any other likely choice of understanding what the us reference in Genesis 3.22 might actually mean, okay? So it's pretty clear there, I guess in my opinion, that the us in Genesis 3.22 is a reference to God speaking to the cherubim, speaking to the cherubs, the plural angels there. So that gives, I think, a very reasonable guess as to what the former reference in Genesis 126 means. So we have God deliberating in Genesis 3.22 that... Man has become like one of us, he knows good and evil, and he might stretch out his hand to do this, and God is having this dialogue with other persons. We know those other persons most likely represent the angels, and so it's very likely that that is the solution to what the enigmatic passage in Genesis 1.26 also means. God speaking to the angels, to the angelic host, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let's move on. Let's look at another passage. The third us passage, the third reference with a plural pronoun within the Bible, to God, is also in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 11. This is where humanity is building the Tower of Babel. And we can see in this reference, I'm going to start in Genesis 11 and verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people... And they have all the same language, and this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So, the Lord scattered them abroad from there, over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. That's Genesis 11, verses 5 through 8. We see there in Genesis 11 and verse 7, God says, come, let us go down and confuse their language. So God here is speaking with a singular verb, and he says, come, let us go and do this confusion in regard to the people. Okay. Now, there's no other person that's described here. We don't actually have our reference to angels within this particular passage. But we do have Yahweh dialoguing with other people. And of course, in verse 8, it actually is Yahweh himself scattering them with a singular verb from among the face of the earth. And, of course, they stopped building the city. But that is another reference to a plural pronoun in reference to God. But, just to be fair, just like Genesis one twenty there is nothing within the immediate context that actually gives the identity as to what this other reference within the plural pronoun is describing. We don't know to whom God is speaking. It doesn't say. It doesn't say the Son or the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say angels. It's unlikely, I think, based on what we've seen in the past, that this is a reference to God speaking in the plurality of majesty. So we have to, for the moment, look at Genesis 11, verse 7, and say there's not enough evidence to make this case. Okay, But since we've already seen earlier in Genesis the clue that God does speak to other persons, and those persons seem to be the cherubs, the cherubim in Genesis 3.24, it seems a likely proposal that we can put the angels here, since it also says, come, let us go down and confuse their language. Of course, the angels would be there with God, and they would be accompanying God in the descending to confuse the speech of the people. Let's look at the last reference to God speaking with a plural pronoun. This is in Isaiah chapter 6. This is where the prophet Isaiah receives his commissioning as a prophetic spokesman for God. Isaiah chapter 6, I'm going to read the first eight verses. Verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. That's Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Here we have Isaiah seeing this vision, this trance-like vision, of the throne room he sees the lord sitting on his throne lofty and exalted and of course the temple here is being filled with smoke and all sorts of various creatures these creatures here in verse 2 are called the seraphim the seraphim like the cherubim is a hebrew noun referencing the plurality of seraphs the singular would be a seraph and the plural is the seraphim so This is a reference to the plurality of seraphs of course god here is described as the lord of hosts the word here for host is the word for god's angelic army his angel armies as some people like to describe and he's called the lord of hosts at least twice here in verse 3 and in verse 5 but god says in verse 8 whom shall i send and who shall go for us and of course isaiah volunteers and says here am i send me so who is the reference to the us in isaiah chapter 6 and verse 8 well very clearly in the context we have the seraphs we have the seraphim that are there god is dialoguing with them they are interacting with god in this whole scene they are the ones that actually reach out and demonstrate the forgiveness of isaiah's iniquity and the taking away of his sin so the reference to the us there in isaiah chapter 6 pretty clearly refers to God and the seraphs, God and the angels. So what's interesting is that we've noticed that out of the four passages where God speaks with the us and the are, in Genesis 1, Genesis 3, Genesis 11, and Isaiah chapter 6, two of those four references unambiguously have other persons that are there that are angelic members, members of the angelic court, whether they be cherubs or whether they be seraphs but clearly they are angels. So to me, that seems to be a very attractive solution to what the passages like Genesis one twenty six and 3.22 might mean because they don't have a reference in the immediate context as to whom God is speaking with the plural reference. But since it seems that in the other two references, and again, there are only four references in the entire Bible, both the Old and New Testament, where God speaks here, With the plural pronoun okay that's these four references here you can do a concordance study you can look at all the other passages within the Bible these are the only four here in Genesis 1 Genesis 3 Genesis 11 and Isaiah chapter 6 so out of these four references which are extremely rare even by a statistical standpoint only two of them are unknown but the other two of them are very clear that the context of these passages indicate that There are angels present with God and God is speaking to them and including them in his reference to us and our. So that seems to be to me and to the majority of modern commentators, both conservative and liberal, is the appropriate way to explain Genesis 126 and Genesis 11 and verse 7 understanding that God there, on regular occasion, speaks to the angelic court, speaks to the angels that are surrounding him in heaven. There's one last passage I would like to look at. There's no plural reference here, but it's another passage where it demonstrates that God sits in heaven, and he speaks to the angels around him. He speaks to his heavenly host, and he sends them out to accomplish his will. This is in 1 Kings 22, verses 19-23. through 23. We have the prophet here, Micaiah, who said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. The Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, and go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. Then the spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. The Lord said to him, How? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, You are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets, and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. That's First Kings 22, verses 19 through 23. In this passage, it's very clear God there sitting on his throne and all of the host of heaven are standing by him on the right and on the left. And the reference there, God saying, who's going to go and do the enticing of Ahab to go and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one of the hosts of heaven said this, while another of the hosts of heaven said that. God here again dialoguing and speaking with none other than the host of heaven. I also think it's interesting in this passage that the fact that Micaiah has this vision of heaven of God on the throne and he sees around him the host of heaven he doesn't see God the Son. he doesn't see the third person of the Trinity up there with him he definitely doesn't see a bunch of dead Saints up there in heaven he sees heaven and what he sees is God on the throne and a bunch of angels but God here is just kind of casually asking the question who's going to go and entice just like we saw in Isaiah chapter 6 who's going to go for us that question was asked to the heavenly host and of course we have here one of the heavenly host who is described as a spirit and sometimes angels are described as spirits within the Bible and one of these comes forward and volunteers to be the one that is going to entice and deceive Ahab and of course God says go and do so. God sends this angel out. But it's interesting, the dialogue that was taking place between them. There's no us reference here, but what's interesting is that here we have an unambiguous reference to God speaking to the angelic host, to there being the dialoguing and deliberating and just the common interchange between God and a variety of persons within the heavenly host. God speaks here to multiple members of the angelic court, multiple angels, And one volunteers, and God sends this person to be a deceiving spirit. That's very interesting to me because when we look back at Genesis 11, there we see things that almost look very similar. What we see there is that God says, Come, let us go down and confuse their language. What happened in our 1 Kings 22 passage? God is asking one of his angelic members of the angelic host to go down and to deceive or entice Ahab, and of course God sends that angelic member down to accomplish this. What's interesting is that God is ultimately the one that is credited, since God is the sender, and the one who's ultimately authoritative in the sending in first kings 22 so it says in first kings twenty-two, twenty-three that the lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of these prophets just like it can say in genesis 11 that the lord is the one who scattered them abroad from over the face of the entire earth despite the fact that it's very clear that god was talking dialoguing and deliberating with other persons who were to also go down and confuse their language. So, in conclusion, we have observed that there are four verses in Scripture where an argument could be made that God is not a single person, but rather a plurality of persons within the supposed Godhead. Two of these passages clearly involve members of the angelic host present in the context. Often dialoguing and deliberating with God on what should be done on earth. In fact, the combined reference to God and his angels is such a common enough image within the Bible in regard to what takes place in heaven that out of all the possibilities of explaining these for us verses that are reasonable, this seems to be the one that makes the best sense. In other words, the for us text almost certainly refer to God and his angels, and therefore do not pose a threat to the 25,000 grammatical references to God as one single person. If you enjoy the Biblical Unitarian Podcast and you would like to donate to the work that it's doing, please check out this episode's description for a PayPal link. Thanks so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith. I am your host, and until next time, take care.